to refuse to endorse violence, but to offer intelligence about Soviet troop movements, was to give a new dimension to ambivalence. It might mean that Carter did not share Deng's view of an underlying Soviet threat. Or by reducing Chinese fears of a possible Soviet reaction, it might be construed as an encouragement to invasion. The next day, Carter and Deng met alone, and Carter handed Deng a note, as yet unpublished, summarizing the American position. According to Brzezinski, the president himself drafted by hand a letter to Deng, moderate in tone and sober in content, stressing the importance of restraint and summarizing the likely adverse international consequences. I felt that this was the right approach, for we could not collude formally with the Chinese in sponsoring what was tantamount to overt military aggression. Informal collusion was another matter. According to a memorandum recounting the private conversation, at which only an interpreter was present, Deng insisted that strategic analysis overrode Carter's invocation of world opinion. Above all, China must not be thought of as pliable. China must still teach Vietnam a lesson. The Soviet Union can use Cuba, Vietnam, and then Afghanistan will evolve into a proxy for the Soviet Union. The PRC is approaching this issue from a position of strength. The action will be very limited. If Vietnam thought the PRC soft, then the situation will get worse. Dung left the United States on February 4, 1979. On his return trip from the United States, he completed placing the last Wei Chi piece on the board. He stopped off in Tokyo for the second time in six months to assure himself of Japanese support for the imminent military action and to isolate the Soviet Union further. To Prime Minister Masayoshi Ohira, Deng reiterated China's position that Vietnam had to be punished for its invasion of Cambodia, and he pledged to uphold the long-term prospects of international peace and stability, the Chinese people will firmly fulfill our internationalist duties and will not hesitate to even bear the necessary sacrifices. After having visited Burma, Nepal, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Japan twice, and the United States, Deng had accomplished his objective of drawing China into the world and isolating Hanoi. He never left China again, adopting in his last years the remoteness and inaccessibility of traditional Chinese rulers. The Third Vietnam War On February 17th, China mounted a multi-pronged invasion of northern Vietnam from southern China's Guangxi and Yunnan provinces. The size of the Chinese force reflected the importance China attached to the operation. It has been estimated to have numbered more than 200,000 and perhaps as many as 400,000 PLA soldiers. One historian has concluded that the invasion force which included regular ground forces, militia, and naval and air force units, was similar in scale to the assault with which China made such an impact on its entry into the Korean War in November 1950. The official Chinese press accounts called it the self-defensive counterattack against Vietnam, or the counterattack in self-defense on the Sino-Vietnamese border. It represented the Chinese version of deterrence, an invasion advertised in advance to forestall the next Vietnamese move. 
The target of China's military was a fellow communist country, recent ally, and longtime beneficiary of Chinese economic and military support. The goal was to preserve the strategic equilibrium in Asia as China saw it. Further, China undertook the campaign with the moral support, diplomatic backing, and intelligence cooperation of the United States, the same imperialist power that Beijing had helped eject from Indochina five years earlier. The stated Chinese war aim was to put a restraint on the wild ambitions of the Vietnamese and to give them an appropriate limited lesson. Appropriate meant to inflict sufficient damage to affect Vietnamese options and calculations for the future. Limited implied that it would be ended before outside intervention or other factors drove it out of control. It was also a direct challenge to the Soviet Union. Deng's prediction that the Soviet Union would not attack China was borne out. The day after China launched its invasion, the Soviet government released a lukewarm statement that, while condemning China's criminal attack, emphasized that the heroic Vietnamese people is capable of standing up for itself this time again. The Soviet military response was limited to sending a naval task force to the South China Sea, undertaking a limited arms airlift to Hanoi, and stepping up air patrols along the Sino-Soviet border. The airlift was constrained by geography, but also by internal hesitations. In the end, the Soviet Union gave as much support in 1979 to its new ally, Vietnam, as it had extended 20 years earlier to its then-ally, China, in the Taiwan Strait crises. In neither case would the Soviet Union run any risks of a wider war. Shortly after the war, Hua Guofeng summed up the outcome in a pithy phrase contemptuous of Soviet leaders. As for threatening us, they did that by maneuvers near the border, sending ships to the South China Sea, but they did not dare to move. So after all, we could still touch the buttocks of the tiger. Deng sarcastically rejected American advice to be careful. During a late February 1979 visit of Treasury Secretary Michael Blumenthal to Beijing, Blumenthal called for Chinese troops to withdraw from Vietnam as quickly as possible because Beijing ran risks that were unwarranted. Deng demurred. Speaking to American reporters just before his meeting with Blumenthal, Deng displayed his disdain for equivocation, mocking some people who were afraid of offending the Cuba of the Orient. As in the Sino-Indian War, China executed a limited punitive strike, followed immediately by a retreat. It was over in 29 days. Shortly after the PLA captured and reportedly laid waste to the capitals of the three Vietnamese provinces along the border, Beijing announced that Chinese forces would withdraw from Vietnam, save for several disputed pieces of territory. Beijing made no attempt to overthrow the Hanoi government or to enter Cambodia in any overt capacity. A month after the Chinese troops had withdrawn, Deng explained the Chinese strategy to me on a visit to Beijing. Deng, after I came back from the United States, we immediately fought a war. But we asked you for your opinion beforehand. I talked it over with President Carter, and then he replied in a very formal and solemn way. He read a written text to me. I said to him, China will handle this question independently, 
and if there is any risk, China will take on the risk alone. In retrospect, we think if we had driven deeper into Vietnam in our punitive action, it would have been even better. Kissinger, it could be done, because our forces were sufficient to drive all the way to Hanoi, but it wouldn't be advisable to go that far. Kissinger, no, it would probably have gone beyond the limits of calculation. Dung, yes, you're right, but we could have driven thirty kilometers deeper into Vietnam. We occupied all the defensive areas of fortification. There wasn't a defense line left all the way to Hanoi. The conventional wisdom among historians is that the war was a costly Chinese failure. The effects of the PLA's politicization during the Cultural Revolution became apparent during the campaign. Hampered by outdated equipment, logistical problems, personnel shortages, and inflexible tactics, Chinese forces advanced slowly and at great cost. By some analysts' estimates. The PLA suffered as many killed in action in one month of fighting the Third Vietnam War, as the United States suffered in the most costly years of the second one. Conventional wisdom is based, however, on a misapprehension of the Chinese strategy. Whatever the shortcomings of its execution, the Chinese campaign reflected a serious long-term strategic analysis. In the Chinese leadership's explanations to their American counterparts. They described the consolidation of Soviet-backed Vietnamese power in Indochina as a crucial step in the Soviet Union's worldwide strategic deployment. The Soviet Union had already concentrated troops in Eastern Europe and along China's northern border. Now the Chinese leaders warned Moscow was beginning to get bases in Indochina, Africa, and the Middle East. If it consolidated its position in these areas. It would control vital energy resources and be able to block key sea lanes, most notably the Malacca Strait, connecting the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. This would give Moscow the strategic initiative in any future conflict. In a broader sense, the war resulted from Beijing's analysis of Shunzi's concept of Shi, the trend and potential energy of the strategic landscape. Deng aimed to arrest and, if possible, reverse what he saw as an unacceptable momentum of Soviet strategy. China achieved this objective in part by its military daring, in part by drawing the United States into unprecedentedly close cooperation. China's leaders had navigated the Third Vietnam War by meticulous analysis of their strategic choices, daring execution, and skillful diplomacy. With all these qualities, they would not have been able to touch the buttocks of the tiger, but for the cooperation of the United States. The Third Vietnam War ushered in the closest collaboration between China and the United States for the period of the Cold War. Two trips to China by American emissaries established an extraordinary degree of joint action. Vice President Walter Fritz Mondale visited China in August 1979. To devise a diplomacy for the aftermath of the Dung visit, especially with respect to Indochina, it was a complex problem in which strategic and moral considerations were in severe conflict. The United States and China agreed that it was in each country's national interest to prevent the emergence of an Indochinese federation under Hanoi's control. But the only part of Indochina that was still contested was Cambodia. Which had been governed by the execrable Pol Pot, 
who had murdered millions of his compatriots. The Khmer Rouge constituted the best organized element of Cambodia's anti-Vietnam resistance. Carter and Mondale took a long and dedicated record of devotion to human rights into government. Indeed, they had, in their presidential campaign, attacked Ford on the ground of insufficient attention to the issue of human rights. Dung had first raised the issue of aid to the Cambodian guerrilla resistance against the Vietnamese invaders during the private conversation with Carter about the invasion of Vietnam. According to the official report, the president asked if the Thais could accept and relay it to the Cambodians. Dung said yes, and that he has in mind light weapons. The Thais are now sending a senior officer to the Thai-Cambodian border to keep communications more secure. The de facto cooperation between Washington and Beijing on aid to Cambodia through Thailand had the practical effect of indirectly assisting the remnants of the Khmer Rouge. American officials were careful to stress to Beijing that the United States cannot support Pol Pot and welcomed China's assurances that Pol Pot no longer exercised full control over the Khmer Rouge. This sop to conscience did not change the reality that Washington provided material and diplomatic support to the Cambodian resistance in a manner that the administration must have known would benefit the Khmer Rouge. Carter's successors in Ronald Reagan's administration followed the same strategy. America's leaders undoubtedly expected that if the Cambodian resistance prevailed, they or their successors would oppose the Khmer Rouge element of it in the aftermath which is what in effect happened after the Vietnamese withdrawal over a decade later. American ideals had encountered the imperatives of geopolitical reality. It was not cynicism, even less hypocrisy, that forged this attitude. The Carter administration had to choose between strategic necessities and moral conviction. They decided that for their moral convictions to be implemented, ultimately they needed first to prevail in the geopolitical struggle. The American leaders faced the dilemma of statesmanship. Leaders cannot choose the options history affords them, even less that they be unambiguous. The visit of Secretary of Defense Harold Brown marked a further step towards Sino-American cooperation, unimaginable only a few years earlier. Dung welcomed him. Your coming here itself is of major significance, he noted to Brown, because you are the Secretary of Defense. A few veterans of the Ford administration understood this hint about the invitation to Secretary Schlesinger, aborted when Ford dismissed him. The main agenda was to define the United States' military relationship with China. The Carter administration had come to the conclusion that an increase in China's technological and military capacity was important for global equilibrium and American national security. Washington had drawn a distinction between the Soviet Union and China, Secretary Brown explained, and was willing to transfer some military technology to China that it would not make available to the Soviets. Further, the United States was willing to sell military equipment to China, such as surveillance equipment and vehicles, though not arms. It would not, moreover, interfere in decisions by NATO allies to sell arms to China. As President Carter explained in his instructions to Brzezinski, the United States does not object to the more forthcoming attitude which our allies are adopting in regard to trade with China in technology-sensitive areas, 
We have an interest in a strong and secure China, and we recognize and respect this interest. In the end, China was not able to rescue the Khmer Rouge or force Hanoi to withdraw its troops from Cambodia for another decade. Perhaps recognizing this, Beijing framed its war aims in much more limited terms. However, Beijing did impose heavy costs on Vietnam. Chinese diplomacy in Southeast Asia before, during, and after the war worked with great determination and skill to isolate Hanoi. China maintained a heavy military presence along the border, retained several disputed pieces of territory, and continued to hold out the threat of a second lesson to Hanoi. For years afterward, Vietnam was forced to support considerable forces on its northern border to defend against another possible Chinese attack. As Dong had told Mondale in August 1979, for a country of that size to keep a standing force of more than one million, where will you find enough workforce? A standing force of one million needs a lot of logistical support. Now they depend on the Soviet Union. Some estimates say they are getting two million dollars a day from the Soviet Union. Some estimates say two and a half million. It will increase difficulties, and this burden on the Soviet Union will grow heavier and heavier. Things will become more difficult. In time, the Vietnamese will come to realize that not all their requests to the Soviet Union can be met. In those circumstances, perhaps a new situation will emerge. That situation did, in fact, occur over a decade later, when the collapse of the Soviet Union and of Soviet financial support brought about a retrenchment in Vietnamese deployment in Cambodia. Ultimately, over a time period more difficult to sustain for democratic societies, China achieved a considerable part of its strategic objectives in Southeast Asia. Deng achieved sufficient maneuvering room to meet his objective of thwarting Soviet domination of Southeast Asia and the Malacca Strait. The Carter administration performed a tightrope act that maintained an option toward the Soviet Union via negotiations over the limitations of strategic arms, while basing its Asian policy on the recognition that Moscow remained the principal strategic adversary. The ultimate loser in the conflict was the Soviet Union, whose global ambitions had caused alarm around the world. A Soviet ally had been attacked by the Soviet Union's most vocal and strategically most explicit adversary, which was openly agitating for a containment alliance against Moscow. All this within a month of the conclusion of the Soviet-Vietnamese alliance. In retrospect. Moscow's relative passivity in the Third Vietnam War can be seen as the first symptom of the decline of the Soviet Union. One wonders whether the Soviets' decision a year later to intervene in Afghanistan was prompted in part by an attempt to compensate for their ineffectuality in supporting Vietnam against the Chinese attack. In either case, the Soviets' miscalculation in both situations. Was in not realizing the extent to which the correlation of global forces had shifted against them. The Third Vietnam War may thus be counted as another example in which Chinese statesmen succeeded in achieving long-term, big-picture strategic objectives without the benefit of a military establishment comparable to that of their adversaries. Though providing breathing space for the remnants of the Khmer Rouge can hardly be counted as a moral victory. China achieved its larger geopolitical aims vis-à-vis -vis the Soviet Union and Vietnam, 
both of whose militaries were better trained and equipped than China's. Equanimity in the face of materially superior forces has been deeply ingrained in Chinese strategic thinking, as is apparent from the parallels with China's decision to intervene in the Korean War. Both Chinese decisions were directed against what Beijing perceived to be a gathering danger, a hostile power's consolidation of bases at multiple points along the Chinese periphery. In both cases, Beijing believed that if the hostile power were allowed to complete its design, China would be encircled, and thus remain in a permanent state of vulnerability. The adversary would be in a position to launch a war at a time of its choosing. And knowledge of this advantage would allow it to act, as Hua Guofeng told President Carter when they met in Tokyo, without scruples. Therefore, a seemingly regional issue—in the first case, the American rebuff of North Korea; in the second case, Vietnam's occupation of Cambodia—was treated as the focus of the struggles in the world, as Zhou described Korea. Both interventions set China against a stronger power that threatened its perception of its security. Each, however, did so on terrain and at a time of Beijing's choosing. As Vice Premier Geng Biao later told Brzezinski, the Soviet Union's support for Vietnam is a component of its global strategy. It is directed not just at Thailand, but at Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and the Straits of Malacca. If they succeeded. It would be a fatal blow to ASEAN, and would also interdict the lines of communications for Japan and the United States. We are committed to do something about this. We may have no capability to cope with the Soviet Union, but we have the capability to cope with Vietnam. These were not elegant affairs. China threw troops into immensely costly battles. And sustain casualties on a scale that would have been unacceptable in the Western world. In the Sino-Vietnam War, the PLA seems to have pursued its task with many shortcomings, significantly increasing the scale of Chinese losses. But both interventions achieved noteworthy strategic goals. At two key moments in the Cold War, Beijing applied its doctrine of offensive deterrence successfully. In Vietnam, China succeeded in exposing the limits of the Soviet defense commitment to Hanoi, and more important, of its overall strategic reach. China was willing to risk war with the Soviet Union to prove that it refused to be intimidated by the Soviet presence on its southern flank. Singapore's Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew has summed up the ultimate result of the war: the Western press. Wrote off the Chinese punitive action as a failure. I believe it changed the history of East Asia. Chapter 14: Reagan and the Advent of Normalcy. One of the obstacles to continuity in America's foreign policy is the sweeping nature of its periodic changes of government. As a result of term limits. Every presidential appointment, down to the level of deputy assistant secretary, is replaced at least every eight years. A change of personnel involving as many as five thousand key positions. The successors have to undergo a prolonged vetting process. 
In practice, a vacuum exists for the first nine months or so of the incoming administration, in which it is obliged to act by improvisation or on the recommendations of holdover personnel, as it gradually adjusts to exercising its own authority. The inevitable learning period is complicated by the desire of the new administration to legitimize its rise to office by alleging that all inherited problems are the policy faults of its predecessor and not inherent problems. They are deemed soluble and in a finite time. Continuity of policy becomes a secondary consideration if not an invidious claim. Since new presidents have just won an election campaign, they may also overestimate the range of flexibility that objective circumstances permit or rely excessively on their persuasive power. For countries relying on American policy, the perpetual psychodrama of democratic transitions is a constant invitation to hedge their bets. These tendencies were a special challenge to the relationship with China. As these pages show, the early years of rapprochement between the United States and the People's Republic of China involved a period of mutual discovery, but later decades depended importantly on the two countries' ability to develop parallel assessments of the international situation. Harmonizing intangibles becomes especially difficult when leadership is in constant flux, and both China and the United States witnessed dramatic leadership changes in the decade of the 1970s. The Chinese transitions have been described in earlier chapters. In the United States, the president who opened relations with China resigned 18 months later, but the key foreign policy remained in place. The Carter administration represented the first change in political parties for the Chinese leadership. They had observed statements by Carter as a candidate promising a transformation of American foreign policy to embrace a new openness and emphasis on human rights. He had said little about China. There was some concern in Beijing whether Carter would maintain the anti-hegemony dimension of the established relationship. As it turned out, Carter and his top advisors reaffirmed the basic principles of the relationship, including those with respect to Taiwan, personally affirmed by Nixon during his visit to Beijing. At the same time, the advent of Deng and the collapse of the Gang of Four gave the dialogue between China and the United States a new pragmatic dimension. The most intense strategic dialogue between the United States and China had barely been established when another change of administrations brought in a new Republican president with a landslide win. For China, the new president was an unsettling prospect. Ronald Reagan was difficult to analyze even for China's meticulous researchers. He did not fit any established category. A former movie star and president of the Screen Actors Guild, who had willed himself to political prominence, Reagan represented a dramatically different kind of American conservatism than the withdrawn and cerebral Nixon or the serene Midwestern Ford. Defiantly optimistic about American possibilities in a period of crisis, Ronald Reagan, more than any high American official since John Foster Dulles, attacked communism as an evil to be eradicated within a finite period of time, not a threat to be contained over generations. 
Yet he focused his critique of communism almost entirely on the Soviet Union and its satellite states. In 1976, Reagan had campaigned against Gerald Ford for the Republican presidential nomination by attacking the detente policy with the Soviet Union, but had on the whole avoided criticizing the rapprochement with China. Reagan's critique of Soviet intentions, which he continued with renewed vigor in the 1980 campaign, had much in common with the lectures Deng had been delivering to top American officials since his first return from exile. Yet in Reagan's case, it was paired with a strong personal attachment to the prevailing political order in Taiwan. In October 1971, Nixon had encouraged Reagan, then governor of California, to visit Taiwan as a special emissary to affirm that the improvement of relations between Washington and Beijing had not altered the basic American interest in Taiwan's security. Reagan left the island with warm personal feelings toward its leaders and a profound commitment to the relationship of the peoples of America and Taiwan. Subsequently, while Reagan stopped short of challenging the existing understanding with Beijing, he was highly critical of the Carter administration's move to sever formal diplomatic ties with Taipei and downgrade the American embassy in Taiwan to an unofficial American institute. In his 1980 presidential campaign against Carter, he pledged that under a Reagan administration there would be no more Vietnams, no more Taiwans, and no more betrayals. Technically, the embassy in Taipei had been the American embassy to China. The American decision culminated under the Carter administration to relocate this embassy to Beijing was a belated recognition that the nationalists were no longer poised to recover the mainland. Reagan's implicit critique was that the United States should have retained a full embassy in Taipei as part of a two-China solution recognizing both sides of the Taiwan Strait as separate, independent states. Yet in its negotiations with the Nixon, Ford and Carter administrations and with all other governments negotiating the terms of diplomatic recognition, this was the one outcome that Beijing consistently and adamantly refused to consider. Ronald Reagan thus embodied the existing American ambivalence. A powerful commitment to the new relationship with Beijing coexisted with a strong residue of emotional support for Taiwan. One of Reagan's themes was to advocate official relations with Taiwan, though he never explained publicly exactly what this meant. During the 1980 presidential campaign, Reagan decided to try to square the circle. He sent his vice presidential candidate, George H.W. Bush, to Beijing, where he had served with distinction as head of the U.S. Liaison Office, which functioned in lieu of an embassy. Bush told Deng that Reagan did not mean to imply that he endorsed formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, nor did Reagan intend to move toward a two-China solution. Deng's frosty reply, surely not unaffected by the fact that Reagan repeated his advocacy of formal relations with Taiwan while Bush was in Beijing, induced Reagan to ask me, in September 1980, to serve as an intermediary in delivering a similar, somewhat more detailed message on his behalf to the Chinese ambassador Chai Zimin. It was a tall order. 
meeting with Chai in Washington, I affirmed that, despite his campaign rhetoric, Candidate Reagan intended to uphold the general principles of U.S.-Chinese strategic cooperation established during the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations, and outlined in the Shanghai Communique and the 1979 Communique announcing normalization of diplomatic relations. Specifically, Reagan had asked me to convey that he would not pursue a two-China policy or a one-China, one-Taiwan policy. I added that I was sure that the ambassador and his government had studied Governor Reagan's career, and that in doing so, they would have noted that he had many close friends on Taiwan. Attempting to put this in a human context, I argued that Reagan could not abandon personal friendships, and that Chinese leaders would lose respect for him if he did so. As president, however. Reagan would be committed to the existing framework of U.S. People's Republic relations, which provided a basis for shared Chinese and American efforts to prevent hegemony, that is, Soviet dominance. In other words, Reagan, as president, would stand by his friends, but also by America's commitments. It cannot be said that the Chinese ambassador received this information with unrelieved enthusiasm. Conscious of the favorable public opinion polls projecting Reagan's victory in November, he took no chances in expressing an opinion. Taiwan arms sales and the third communique. The early phase of the Reagan administration was marked by its chief's faith that his persuasiveness could bridge the gap between two, on the face, incompatible positions. In practice. It meant that both positions were carried out simultaneously. The issue had some urgency, because normalization had taken precedence over resolving a final legal status for Taiwan. Carter had stated that America intended to continue to supply arms to Taiwan. Dunn, eager to complete the normalization process, so that he could confront Vietnam with at least the appearance of American support. Proceeded with normalization, in effect ignoring Carter's unilateral statement on arms supply. In the meantime, in 1979, the U.S. Congress had responded to the winding down of the official American diplomatic presence in Taipei by passing the Taiwan Relations Act. This legislation outlined a framework for continued robust economic, cultural, and security ties between the United States and Taiwan. And declared that the United States will make available to Taiwan such defense articles and defense services in such quantity as may be necessary to enable it to maintain a sufficient self-defense capacity. As soon as the Reagan administration took office, Chinese leaders raised the Taiwan arms issue again, treating it as an unfinished aspect of normalization, and bringing to a head the American internal contradictions. Reagan made no secret of his wish that some arms sales to Taiwan go forward. His Secretary of State Alexander Haig had a contrary view. Haig had been my deputy on the Nixon White House staff that planned the secret visit in 1971. He had led the technical team that advanced Nixon's visit, during which he had a substantive conversation with Joe. As a member of the generation that had experienced the start of the Cold War. 
Haig was keenly aware of how the addition of China to the anti-Soviet camp altered the strategic equilibrium. Haig treated the potential role of China as a de facto American ally as a breakthrough to be preserved as a top priority. As a result, Haig sought for ways to come to an understanding with Beijing, whereby the United States would supply arms to both China and Taiwan. That scheme foundered on both sides. Reagan would not agree to formal arms sales to China, and Beijing would not consider a deal that implied a trade of principle for military hardware. Matters threatened to get out of hand. Haig, conducting arduous negotiations both within the U.S. government and with his counterparts in Beijing, achieved an agreement that permitted both sides to postpone a final resolution while establishing a roadmap for the future. That Deng acquiesced in so indefinite and partial an outcome demonstrates the importance he attached to maintaining close relations with the United States, as well as his confidence in Haig. The so-called Third Communique of August 17, 1982, has become part of the basic architecture of the U.S.-China relationship, regularly reaffirmed as part of the sacramental language of subsequent high-level dialogues and joint communiques. It is odd that the third communique should have achieved such a status together with the Shanghai communique of Nixon's visit and the normalization agreement of the Carter period. For the communique is quite ambiguous, hence a difficult roadmap for the future. Each side, as before, restated its basic principles. China affirmed its position that Taiwan was a domestic Chinese affair in which foreigners had no legitimate role. America restated its concern for a peaceful resolution, going so far as to claim that it appreciates the Chinese policy of striving for a peaceful resolution. This formulation evaded the consistent and frequently repeated Chinese assertion that it reserved its freedom of action to use force if a peaceful resolution proved unfeasible. The key operative paragraph concerned arms sales to Taiwan. It read, The United States government states that it does not seek to carry out a long-term policy of arms sales to Taiwan, that its arms sales to Taiwan will not exceed, either in qualitative or in quantitative terms, the level of those supplied in recent years since the establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States and China, and that it intends to reduce gradually its sales of arms to Taiwan, leading over a period of time to a final resolution. In so stating, the United States acknowledges China's consistent position regarding the thorough settlement of this issue. None of these terms was precisely defined, or for that matter defined at all, what was meant by gradually was left open, nor was the level reached in the Carter period, which was to be the benchmark, ever specified. While the United States abjured a policy of long-term arms sales, it gave no indication of what it understood by long-term. While China reaffirmed its insistence on a final settlement, it established no deadline and submitted no threat. Domestic imperatives on both sides dictated the limits. China would not accept the principle of a foreign arms supplier 
on what it considered its own territory. American politics, underscored by the passage of the Taiwan Relations Act by wide margins in the U.S. Congress, did not permit any cutoff of arms for Taiwan. It is a tribute to the statesmanship on both sides that this state of affairs has been continued for nearly 30 years since the events discussed in these pages. The immediate aftermath of the third communique showed that its meaning was not self-evident to the president of the United States. He told the publisher of the National Review, "You can tell your friends there I have not changed my mind one damn bit about Taiwan." Whatever weapons they need to defend themselves against attacks or invasion by Red China, they will get from the United States. Reagan felt so strongly on this subject that he called Dan Rather, then the anchor on the CBS Evening News, to deny reports that he no longer backed Taiwan, declaring, "There has been no retreat by me. We will continue to arm Taiwan." To implement the president's conviction. The White House secretly negotiated the so-called Six Assurances with Taiwan to restrict the implementation of the communique it had just signed with China. The assurances affirmed that the United States had not set a specific date to end arms sales to Taiwan, had not committed to consulting with Beijing on such sales, had not committed to amend the Taiwan Relations Act. Had not altered its position regarding Taiwan's political status, and would neither pressure Taipei to negotiate with Beijing nor serve as a mediator. The assurances were reinforced by a memorandum placed in the files of the National Security Council that tied observance of the communique to the peaceful solution of the differences between the People's Republic and Taiwan. The administration also proceeded to give a liberal interpretation to the third communique's concept of reducing arms sales to Taiwan through technology transfers, technically not arms sales, and an inventive interpretation of the level of various weapons programs. Washington extended a program of military support to Taiwan, whose duration and substance Beijing seems not to have anticipated. The Taiwan Relations Act, of course, binds the president. It has never been acknowledged by China's leaders, who do not accept the premise that American legislation can create an obligation with respect to arms sales to Taiwan, or condition American diplomatic recognition on the peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue. It would be dangerous to equate acquiescence to circumstance with agreement for the indefinite future. That a pattern of action has been accepted for a number of years does not obviate its long-term risks, as Beijing's heated reaction to the arms sale of the spring of 2010 demonstrates. The Reagan administration's China and Taiwan policy during the first term was therefore a study in almost incomprehensible contradictions between competing personalities, conflicting policy goals. Contradictory assurances to Beijing and Taipei, and incommensurable moral and strategic imperatives. Reagan gave the impression of supporting all of them at once, all as a matter of deep conviction. To the scholar, or the traditional policy analyst, the Reagan administration's early approach to the People's Republic and Taiwan violated every ground rule of coherent policy. 
However, as with many other controversial and unconventional Reagan policies, it worked out quite well in the following decades. The remarkable aspect of Reagan's presidency was his ability to blunt the edges of controversy, even while affirming his own essentially unchanging convictions. Whatever his disagreements, Reagan never turned them into personal confrontations, nor did he transform his strong ideological convictions into crusades other than rhetorical. He was therefore in a position to reach across ideological gulfs on the basis of practicality and even goodwill. As Reagan and his subsequent Secretary of State, George Shultz's remarkable series of negotiations with their Soviet counterparts, Mikhail Gorbachev and Edward Shevardnadze, over nuclear arms limitations would demonstrate. With respect to China, its leaders came to understand that Reagan had gone as far as his convictions permitted and to the utmost limit of what he was able to accomplish within the American political context. He would therefore gain credit for goodwill, even while taking positions that would have been rejected, perhaps even indignantly, had they been put forward in a more formal setting or by a different president. The seeming contradictions in the end established two timelines. What would be done immediately, and what might be left to the future. Deng seems to have understood that the communique established a general direction. It could be traveled once conditions had altered the context that prevented it at the beginning of the Reagan administration. After Schultz took over the State Department in 1982, despite some uncomfortable conversations and bruised egos, the United States, the People's Republic, and Taiwan all emerged from the early 1980s with their core interests generally fulfilled. Beijing was disappointed with Washington's flexible interpretation of the communique but on the whole, the People's Republic achieved another decade of American assistance as it built its economic and military power and its capacity to play an independent role in world affairs. Washington was able to pursue amicable relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait and to cooperate with China on common anti-Soviet imperatives such as intelligence sharing and support for the Afghan insurgency. Taiwan obtained a bargaining position from which to negotiate with Beijing. When the dust eventually settled, the most vocally anti-communist and pro-Taiwan president since Nixon had been able to preside over a normal relationship with the People's Republic of China without any major crisis. China and the superpowers, the new equilibrium. The real drama of the 1980s was not in Washington's and Beijing's relations with each other, but in their respective relationships with Moscow. The impetus was a series of significant shifts in the strategic landscape. In assessing China's policies, one contingency can generally be excluded. The Chinese policymakers overlooked a set of discoverable facts. So when China went along with the ambiguous language, and the flexible interpretation of the Taiwan Clause in the Third Communique, it can only have been because it thought cooperation with the United States would fulfill its other national purposes. When Ronald Reagan came into office, the strategic offensive started by the Soviet Union in the late 1970s had not yet run its course. In the years since the collapse of the American position in Indochina, 
the Soviet Union and its proxies had embarked on an unprecedented and nearly indiscriminate series of advances in the developing world. In Angola, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, and Indochina. But the U.S.-China rapprochement had set up a significant bulwark against further expansion. Powered by the convictions of Deng and his colleagues, and skillful cooperation by American officials of both political parties, the horizontal line Mao envisioned had, in fact, taken shape. By the mid-1980s, the Soviet Union faced coordinated defense and, in many cases, active resistance on almost all of its borders. In the United States, Western Europe, and East Asia, a loose coalition of nearly all the industrial countries had formed against the Soviet Union. In the developed world, the Soviet Union's only remaining allies were the Eastern European satellites in which it stationed troops. Meanwhile, the developing world had proven skeptical about the benefits of popular liberation under Soviet and Cuban arms. In Africa, Asia, and Latin America, Soviet expansionist efforts were turning into costly stalemates or discredited failures. In Afghanistan, the Soviet Union experienced many of the same trials America had undergone in Vietnam. In this case, backed by coordinated efforts of the United States, China, the Gulf states, and Pakistan to sponsor and train an armed resistance. In Vietnam itself, Moscow's attempt to bring Indochina united under Hanoi into the Soviet orbit met a forceful rebuff from China, facilitated by American cooperation. Beijing and Washington were, as Deng had so vividly described it to Carter, chopping off Soviet fingers. At the same time, the American strategic buildup, especially the strategic defense initiative championed by Reagan, posed a technological challenge that the stagnant and overburdened Soviet economy, already bearing a defense burden three times that of the United States as a percentage of each country's respective GDP, could not begin to meet. At this high point in Sino-American cooperation, the Reagan White House and the top Chinese leadership had roughly congruent assessments of Soviet weakness. But they drew significantly different conclusions about the policy implications of this new state of affairs. Reagan and his top officials perceived Soviet disarray as an opportunity to go on the offensive. Pairing a major military buildup with a new ideological assertiveness they sought to pressure the Soviet Union, both financially and geopolitically, and drive for what amounted to victory in the Cold War. The Chinese leaders had a similar conception of Soviet weakness, but they drew the opposite lesson. They saw it as an invitation to recalibrate the global equilibrium. Beginning in 1969, they attacked toward Washington to redress China's precarious geopolitical position, they had no interest in the global triumph of American values and Western liberal democracy that Reagan proclaimed as his ultimate goal. Having touched the buttocks of the tiger in Vietnam, Beijing concluded that it had withstood the high point of the Soviet threat. It now behooved China to tack back toward an enhanced freedom of maneuver. In the 1980s, therefore, the euphoria of the original opening had run its course. The overriding Cold War concerns of the recent past were being overcome. 
Sino-American relations settled into the sort of interactions major powers have with each other, more or less routinely, with fewer high points or troughs. The beginning of the decline of Soviet power played a role. Although the chief actors on both the American and the Chinese side had become so used to Cold War patterns that it took them a while to recognize it. The weak Soviet response to the Chinese invasion of Vietnam marked the beginning of an at first gradual, then accelerating, Soviet decline. The three transitions in Moscow, from Leonid Brezhnev to Yuri Andropov in 1982, from Andropov to Konstantin Chernyenko in 1984, and from Chernyenko to Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985, at a minimum, signified that the Soviet Union would be preoccupied with its domestic crises. The American rearmament begun under Carter and accelerated under Reagan gradually altered the balance of power and constrained the Soviet readiness to intervene around its periphery. Most of the Soviet gains of the 1970s were reversed, though several of these retreats did not take place until the George H.W. Bush administration. The Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia was ended in 1990. Elections were held in 1993 and refugees prepared to return home. Cuban troops withdrew from Angola by 1991. The communist-backed government in Ethiopia collapsed in 1991. In 1990, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua were brought to accept free elections, a risk no governing communist party had ever before been prepared to take. Perhaps the most important, Soviet armies withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989. Soviet retreats gave Chinese diplomacy a new flexibility to maneuver. Chinese leaders spoke less of military containment and began to explore their scope for a new diplomacy with Moscow. They continued to list three conditions for improving relations with the Soviets. Evacuation of Cambodia, ending Soviet troop concentrations in Siberia and Mongolia along the northern Chinese border, and evacuation of Afghanistan. These demands were in the process of being fulfilled largely by changes in the balance of power that made Soviet forward positions untenable and the decisions to withdraw inevitable. The United States received reassurances that China was not ready to move toward Moscow, the Chinese proving that two sides could play at triangular diplomacy. The reassurances in any event had a dual purpose. They affirmed continued adherence to the established strategy of preventing Soviet expansion, but they also served to bring China's growing options before the United States. China soon began to exercise its new options globally. In a conversation I had with Deng in September 1987, he applied the new framework of analysis to the Iran-Iraq war, then raging in its fifth year. The United States was backing Iraq, at least enough to prevent its being defeated by the revolutionary regime in Tehran. Deng argued that China needed leeway to take a more flexible position toward Iran so that it could play a more significant role in the diplomacy to end the war. Deng had been carrying out Mao's horizontal line concept during the confrontation with the Soviet Union. It was now being transformed back into a three-worlds approach in which China stood apart from superpower competition and in which adherence to an independent foreign policy would allow it to pursue its preferences in all three circles.
the superpowers, the developed country circle, and the third world. Hu Yaobang, a Deng protege and party secretary, outlined the prevailing Chinese foreign policy concept to the Communist Party's 12th National Congress in September 1982. Its key provision was a reprise of Mao's "China has stood up." China never attaches itself to any big power or group of powers, and never yields to pressure from any big power. Hu began with a tour d'horizon outlining China's critical assessment of American and Soviet foreign policies, and a list of demands for actions by which each power could demonstrate its good faith. The failure to resolve the Taiwan issue. Meant that a cloud has all along hung over the relations between China and the United States. Relations would develop soundly only if the United States ceased interfering in what China regarded as its purely internal affair. Meanwhile, Hu commented loftily, "We note that Soviet leaders have expressed more than once the desire to improve relations with China, but deeds rather than words are important." China, for its part, was solidifying its position in the Third World, standing apart from and to some degree against both superpowers. The main forces jeopardizing peaceful coexistence among nations today are imperialism, hegemonism, and colonialism. The most important task for the people of the world today is to oppose hegemonism and safeguard world peace. In effect, China claimed a unique moral stature as the largest of the neutral powers, standing above superpower contests. We have always firmly opposed the arms race between the superpowers, stood for the prohibition of the use of nuclear weapons, and for their complete destruction, and demanded that the superpowers be the first to cut their nuclear and conventional arsenals drastically. China regards it as her sacred international duty. To struggle resolutely against imperialism, hegemonism, and colonialism, together with the other third world countries, it was traditional Chinese foreign policy, served up at a Communist Party Congress. Self-reliance, moral aloofness, and superiority, coupled with a commitment to negate superpower aspirations. A 1984 State Department memorandum sent to President Reagan explained that China had positioned itself both to support the American military buildup against Soviet expansionism and to attack superpower rivalry as the major cause of global tension. As a result, China is able to pursue parallel strategic interests with the U.S. and at the same time to strengthen its relations with what it perceives to be an ascendant third world bloc. In 1985, a CIA report described China as maneuvering in the triangle by cultivating closer ties with the Soviet Union through a series of high-level meetings and inter-communist party exchanges of a protocol level and frequency not seen since the Sino-Soviet split. The analysis noted that Chinese leaders had resumed referring to their Soviet counterparts as comrade. And calling the Soviet Union a socialist as opposed to revisionist country, top Chinese and Soviet officials had held substantive consultations on arms control, an unthinkable concept in the previous two decades. And during a week-long 1985 visit by the Chinese Vice Premier Yao Yilin to Moscow, 
the two sides signed a landmark agreement on bilateral trade and economic cooperation. The notion of overlapping circles was more or less what Mao had been advancing toward the end of his life. But the practical consequence was limited. The third world defined itself by its distinction from the two superpowers. It would lose this status if it shifted definitively to one side or another, even in the guise of admitting a superpower to its ranks. As a practical matter, China was on the way to becoming a superpower, and it was acting like one even now, when it was just beginning its reforms. The third world, in short, would exercise major influence only if one of the superpowers joined, and then by definition it would stop being a third world. So long as the Soviet Union was a nuclear superpower and relations with it were precarious, China would have no incentive to move away from the United States. After the Soviet Union's collapse, there were only two circles left, and the question would be whether China would step into the place vacated by the Soviet Union as a challenger or opt for cooperation with the United States. The Sino-American relationship of the 1980s was in short in transition from a Cold War pattern to a global international order that created new challenges for China-U.S. partnership. All this assumed that the Soviet Union remained the basic security threat. The architect of the opening to China, Richard Nixon, understood the world in the same way. In a memorandum to President Reagan after a private visit to China in late 1982, Nixon wrote, I believe it is very much in our interest to encourage the Chinese to play a greater role in the third world. The more successful they are, the less successful the Soviet Union will be. What brought us together primarily in 1972 was our common concern about the threat of Soviet aggression. While that threat is far greater today than it was in 1972, the major unifying factor which will draw us closer together in the next decade could well be our economic interdependence. Nixon went on to urge that for the next decade the United States, its Western allies, and Japan should work jointly to speed the economic development of China. He had a vision of an entirely new international order emerging, based essentially on using China's influence to build the Third World into an anti-Soviet coalition. But not even Nixon's prescience extended to a world in which the Soviet Union had collapsed. And within a generation, China would be in a position where much of the world's economic health depended on its economic performance. Or where the question would be raised whether China's rise would make international relations bipolar again. George Shultz, Reagan's redoubtable Secretary of State and a trained economist, came up with another American conception of concentric circles which placed the Sino-U.S. relationship into a context beyond the Soviet-American conflict. He argued that overemphasis on China's indispensability for dealing with the Soviet threat gave China an excessive bargaining advantage. Relations with it should be on the basis of strict reciprocity. In such a diplomacy, China would play its role for its own national reasons. Chinese goodwill should result from common projects in the joint interest. The purpose of China policy should be to elaborate these common interests. Simultaneously, the United States would seek to reinvigorate its alliance with Japan. 
the country in which Mao, a few years earlier, had urged American officials to spend more time. A fellow democracy. And now, after decades of rapid growth in the aftermath of the Second World War, a major global economic player. Decades of intervening economic malaise have obscured the fact that in the 1980s, Japan's economic capacity not only vastly outmatched China's, but was assumed by many analysts to be on the verge of surpassing that of the United States. This relationship was given a new footing by the personal camaraderie that developed between Reagan and Japan's Prime Minister Yasuhiro Nakasone, or as it came to be known in the media, the Ron and Yasu show. Both the United States and China were edging away from the previous alignment in which they saw themselves as strategic partners facing a common existential threat. Now that the Soviet menace had begun to recede, China and the United States were in effect partners of convenience on selected issues on which their interests aligned. During the Reagan period, no fundamental new tensions developed, and inherited issues like Taiwan were handled undramatically. Reagan performed with characteristic vitality during a 1984 state visit to China. At several points, even conjuring up phrases from classical Chinese poetry and the ancient divination manual, the I Ching, or Book of Changes, to describe the cooperative relationship between the United States and China. Attempting more Mandarin Chinese than any of his predecessors, Reagan even invoked the Chinese idioms "Tong Li He Zuo," connect strength, work together, and "Hu Jing Hu Hui," mutual respect, mutual benefit, to describe the U.S.-China relationship. Yet Reagan never developed a record of close exchanges with any Chinese counterpart as he had with Nakasone. For that matter, no American president did with his Chinese counterpart. And his visit was given no major issues to settle, and confined itself to a review of the world situation. When Reagan criticized a certain unnamed major power for massing troops on China's borders and threatening its neighbors, this portion of his speech was omitted from the Chinese broadcast. As the Reagan years ended, the situation in Asia was the most tranquil it had been in decades. A half century of war and revolution. In China, Japan, Korea, Indochina, and maritime Southeast Asia, had given way to a system of Asian states on essentially Westphalian lines, following the pattern of sovereign states emerging in Europe at the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, with the exception of periodic provocations from the impoverished and isolated North Korea, and the insurgency against the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. Asia was now a world of discrete states with sovereign governments, recognized borders, and a nearly universal tacit agreement to refrain from involvement in each other's domestic, political, and ideological alignments. The project of exporting communist revolution, taken up eagerly in turn by Chinese, North Korean, and North Vietnamese proponents, had drawn to a close. An equilibrium between the various centers of power had been preserved, in part due to the exhaustion of the parties, and in part due to American and subsequently Chinese efforts to turn back various contestants for dominance. Within this context, a new era of Asian economic reform and prosperity was taking root, one that in the 21st century may well return the region 
to its historic role as the world's most productive and prosperous continent. Dung's Reform Program What Dung labeled reform and opening up was not only an economic but also a spiritual endeavor. It involved, first, the stabilization of a society at the edge of economic collapse, and then a search for the inner strength to advance by new methods for which there was no precedent in either communist or Chinese history. The economic situation inherited by Deng was close to desperate. China's collectivized agricultural structure was barely keeping pace with the needs of its massive population. Per capita food consumption was roughly the same as it had been in the early Mao period. One Chinese leader was reported to have admitted that 100 million Chinese peasants, the equivalent of nearly half the entire American population in 1980, went without sufficient food. The closing of the school system during the Cultural Revolution had produced calamitous conditions. In 1982, 34% of China's workforce had only a primary school education, and 28% were considered illiterates or semi-illiterates. Just 0.87% of China's workforce was college-educated. Deng had called for a period of rapid economic growth, but he faced the challenge of how to transform an uneducated, isolated, and still largely impoverished general population into a workforce able to assume a productive and competitive role in the world economy and to withstand its occasional strains. The traditional tools available to those undertaking the reform compounded the challenge. Deng's insistence on modernizing China by opening it to the outside world was the same kind of effort that had thwarted reformers since it was first attempted in the second half of the 19th century. Then the obstacle was the reluctance to abandon a way of life Chinese identified with what defined China's special identity. Now it was how to overturn the practices on which all communist societies had been operating while maintaining the philosophical principles on which the cohesion of the society had been based since Mao's time. At the beginning of the 1980s, central planning was still the operating mode for all communist societies. Its failures were apparent, but remedies had proved elusive. In its advanced stage, communism's incentives were all counterproductive, rewarding stagnation and discouraging initiative. In a centrally planned economy, goods and services are allocated by bureaucratic decision. Over a period of time, prices established by administrative fiat lose their relationship to costs. The pricing system becomes a means of extorting resources from the population and establishing political priorities. As terror by which authority was established eases, prices turn into subsidies and are transformed into a method of gaining public support for the Communist Party. Reform communism proved unable to abolish the laws of economics. Somebody had to pay for real costs. The penalty of central planning and subsidized pricing was poor maintenance, lack of innovation, and overemployment. In other words, stagnation and falling per capita income. Central planning, moreover, provided few incentives to emphasize quality or innovation, since all a manager produced would be bought by a relevant ministry, quality was not a consideration. 
and innovation was in effect discouraged, lest it throw the whole planning edifice out of kilter. In the absence of markets that balanced preferences, the planner was obliged to impose more or less arbitrary judgments. As a result, the goods that were wanted were not produced, and the goods that were produced were not wanted. Above all, the centrally planned state, far from creating a classless society, ended up by enshrining class stratification. Where goods were allocated rather than bought, the real rewards were perquisites of office. Special stores, hospitals, educational opportunities for cadres. Enormous discretion in the hands of officials inevitably led to corruption. Jobs, education, and most perquisites depended on some kind of personal relationship. It is one of history's ironies that communism, advertised as bringing a classless society, tended to breed a privileged class of feudal proportions. It proved impossible to run a modern economy by central planning, but no communist state had ever been run without central planning. Deng's reform and opening up was designed to overcome this built-in stagnation. He and his associates embarked on market economics, decentralized decision-making, and opening to the outside world, all unprecedented changes. They based their revolution on releasing the talents of the Chinese people, whose natural economic vitality and entrepreneurial spirit had long been constrained by war, ideological dogma, and severe strictures on private investment. Deng had two principal collaborators on the reforms, Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, though he later fell out with both when they attempted to carry the principles of economic reform into the political field. One of the youngest participants in the Long March, Hu Yaobang, emerged as a Deng protege and later fell with Deng in the Cultural Revolution. When Deng returned to power, he elevated Hu to some of the highest leadership posts in the Communist Party, culminating in his appointment as General Secretary. During his tenure, Hu was associated with relatively liberal stances on political and economic issues. With his forthright manner, he consistently pushed the limits of what his party and society were willing to accept. He was the first Communist Party leader to appear regularly in Western suits and provoked controversy by suggesting that Chinese abandon chopsticks for knives and forks. Zhao Ziyang, appointed premier in 1980 and general secretary of the Communist Party in January 1987, had pioneered agricultural decollectivization while party secretary in Sichuan. His success in producing a significant rise in living standards earned him the approbation of rural Chinese, as expressed in a pithy pun on his last name a near homonym for the Chinese word look for. If you want to eat grain, jiao, look for, ziyang. Like Hu Yaobang, he was politically unorthodox. He was ultimately removed as general secretary by Deng at the height of the Tiananmen crisis. 